You're listening to Confronting Christianity, a podcast of training the church. The imagination, you know, our individual imaginations and also our sort of collective social imaginary are very powerful. Isn't there also this whole other thing? Can't we be sober-minded enough to go, the situation is actually more tragic than we pretend it to be oftentimes? But we have allowed abortion to become something that politicians can use to woo us and get the votes and to not allow ourselves to be used by politicians who just want to leverage that issue in order to get our votes. This is Rebecca McLaughlin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kyle Worley, and my good friend, Dr. Karen Swallow-Prior. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. Good. Good to see you. For those who don't know and love Karen like I do, here is just a little snapshot of the fabulous things she's been doing. Um, Karen is the Research Professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She is also the author of numerous books, including Booked, Fierce Convictions on Reading Well. She's co-editor of Cultural Engagement, a crash course in contemporary issues. Uh, she has a column for the Religion News Service, and her writing has appeared in outlets, including the New York Times quite recently, uh, Christianity Today, The Atlantic, Washington Post, Vox, The Gospel Coalition, and pretty much all other reputable outlets, as far as Kyle and I can discern. Um, Karen, it's such a joy to have you on with us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And we're going to jump in. Carl and I um, are not averse to um, hard conversations about real and um, in many ways painful and serious issues. And today we're going to be exploring one of the, the most painful and sensitive issues in our culture today, uh, questions around abortion. Um, and we wanted to start, Karen, by just hearing from you a little bit of, of who you are and where you're coming from for, for our listeners who are getting to know you. So would you be willing to share a bit of your story in terms of how you came to follow Jesus, um, what led you into your field of study, and, and why you have been engaging questions around um, pro-life um, advocacy for decades at this point? Yeah, and they're, they're sort of all uh, wrapped up together too. So I'm glad you asked. This is one big question because it's hard for me to separate. Um, I was born into a, a Christian family and accepted Jesus when I was a small child and baptized around age seven, raised in the church and in Sunday school and, you know, all of those things, um, but kind of lived, you know, a, my, a compartmentalized life in the sense that I didn't know how to integrate what I learned um, on Sundays and Wednesday nights with the rest of life. And for me, the rest of life was just the life of, of books and imagination mm. um, as a teenager, a few other things. But, um, but you know, I just, I, you know, I, I was saved. I trusted Jesus. I never really had much doubt. Uh, and it wasn't until I was introduced to the um, idea of Christian worldview mm. Um, when I was actually out of college and in, in graduate school, um, and, and pursuing a PhD in English literature without, still, was still not knowing how to integrate my love of literature, um, with my Christian faith. Um, but Christian worldview started, sort of opened up my eyes to that integration. And by God's providence, I also, um, was, was introduced to the pro-life movement and the pro-life point of view around the same time when my, when a crisis pregnancy center came to visit my church and do a presentation. Um, and I really can't offer any explanation 
uh, about why this issue just took hold mm. of me. Um, I believe it's something, you know, I believe that it's it was God. I believe that I was, I'm called to it. Um, I later learned that my strongest spiritual gift is 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 prophecy. So I think there's that prophetic part of this um, this issue in our culture at this moment in time. And so um, I had no real personal stake in it. I was, uh, when I became pro-life, the, the day I became pro-life, <laughs> which was in that church service, uh, walking in, not knowing anything, of, you know, I was actually, I remember thinking, being very curious, like, oh, I wonder what we're going to learn about abortion in church. Um, and uh, I, I became pro-life in that, in that moment. I was um, 22. I was um Married, pretty, you know, I'd been married, I married young, so I'd been married a couple of years, hadn't been trying to have children at that point, was about to start grad school, didn't, so didn't really feel like I had a personal stake in this issue, but it just, I, I just thought that the first feeling I, and thought I had when I saw that presentation from the Crisis Pregnancy Center was, I, how awful for a woman to think that is her best mm-hmm. option. I want to help women not feel like that's the choice, their best mm. choice. And so I became mm. a volunteer mm. at the center. I didn't, I didn't want women to feel like that was the best choice they had in front of them was abortion. It's so interesting, Karen, you're framing it that way. Cause I think a lot of people, when they think of Christians being pro-life, they think of a supposed concern for unborn babies and a complete lack of concern for vulnerable women. But it sounds like you actually entered the conversation from the opposite, well, not the opposite. I'm sure you had a, a profound concern mm-hmm. for unborn babies as well, but you entered it from from the other angle of of deep concern for for the women involved. Mm-hmm. Karen, I was su- surprised. I was reading an article that you had contributed to, and it was uh, that your activism around this wasn't just like at a volunteering level. Like, I did not really know your CV on this issue. And I I mean, I had read articles that you had written about, uh, you know, uh, pro-life and anti-abortion advocacy, but I was unfamiliar with kind of your, your background on it. So maybe just give us a few of the, like, signpost on the road from, okay, I left the church service, I'm going to volunteer at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. Mm-hmm. How has that evolved over the last 20 or so years? That's a good question. You're going to really try my my memory and my concision <laughs> here to to review that. But I, I'm glad I'm glad you asked because, uh, you know, I've been around for a long time and um, longer than the internet. So there's a long history that <laughs> that people maybe don't necessarily know, as you just uh, just said. Um, so so yeah. So I I wanted to be a, a volunteer for that center, but I was just entering my PhD program, um, and so didn't get involved right away. I thought I I remember I said, well maybe I could edit your mm-hmm. you know newsletter or something. You know use my use my English gifts, and I don't think I did that. But about a year later, I started volunteering um, as 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 a counselor at the this very um, small rural center. And then that was right around the time when um, the group that the movement that became known as Operation Mm -hmm. Rescue um, across the country um, started popping up in communities around the country, including mine. And um, that involved going and protesting at clinics. And I began to do that. So here I was, I was counseling, I was protesting. Uh, 
you know, that's that prophetic mm-hmm. part of me, I think, that, you know, like to protest. Um, it's part of my nature, I guess, to do that. But there was a little bit of a tension right. there, too, um, because I wanted to help the women, right? And so then going and protesting at the clinics, um, I think there's I think there's a that we need to have that witness. We need to protest mm-hmm. to the world and to the culture. But that's different from offering help in that moment to the women. So I became what they call a sidewalk counselor, which is doing just that, offering help to women going into clinics. I did that for 10 straight years every week, at least once a week, going out to the to the clinics and trying to reach the women. Um, and with with the help that we had to offer and, and, and being able to offer it to countless of them. Although, you know, it's tireless work and often thankless work. Um, and I mean, I, and I began, then they asked me to be the pub, you know, sort of the public spokesperson for our community when a news story would come up and television news would want to interview someone or the newspaper. So I became a spokesperson and just because of that became kind of a, a local leader, um, in my city and, and, and when when the protesters, when Operation Rescue came to our city a few times, also um, was arrested uh, a number of times and served as a court liaison for others who were arrested. So I was spending a lot of time at the pre- Crisis right. Pregnancy Center, at the clinics, and eventually became involved in conversations with abortion clinic providers mm-hmm. themselves, um, trying to sort of negotiate ways to offer help to women um, in you know, in, in, in creative ways and, um, and talk to the, to them as well, which obviously is interesting and doesn't produce sort of the results that we, um, you know, that you, that you right. can make public and talk about, but, um, it's, yeah. it's a ministry. I was just curious, Karen, so when people imagine, um, Christians protesting outside an abortion clinic, my guess is they have visions of people holding up signs saying, you know, baby killer or very um, kind of aggressive incendiary language, mm-hmm. um, speaking to, in, in some sense, speaking to, to the, the truth of this, the situation, but in, in a way that um, the, the posture may not be received as, as loving by anyone who's, mm-hmm. who's walking by. My, my, my guess is that you would have had a different message that probably holding a like baby killer's um banner wasn't wasn't your style and wouldn't wouldn't be your style um how can we hold this together how how can we hold together the reality that um if we do believe that the unborn um babies at at whatever age are human beings made in in god's image um, and deserve protection so that abortion is in a real in a real sense murder um while at the same time not laying the kind of blame of that on women who are so often coerced into um, abortion or, or, or put in positions where they feel like they have little choice or, or just part of a surrounding culture where um, honestly it's it's as much the, the the system around them as the individuals making those choices. I'm just I'd love to hear your reflections on that tension mm. and how Christians can engage most helpfully. I mean, this is such a real and um, and extreme mm. tension that you're talking about, and this is where I think my my love of literature and art and imagination guides me and helps me, um, because the imagination, you know, our individual imaginations and also our sort of collective social imaginary, mm. are are very powerful, and so 
so there is this tension where when we are faced with the reality of what abortion does, um, which I said to someone recently who was engaging in an extended dialogue with me about, you know, the laws and court rulings and this or that and what we should do. You know, I just said, I said, I, you know, I wouldn't do to a mouse what abortion does to mm. a tiny human being. Like if you just, you know, just sort of face the the physical raw reality of what abortion does to a to whatever you you know what whatever you want to call it a human fetus an embryo a child um we have to face that reality yet at the same time we can look through history and we can see you know the fact that that people can't or won't recognize what that is and, and 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 the power of of denial the power of rhetoric there's so many ways our imagination can be shaped such that we can't or won't see this reality we have to recognize that part of what it means to be a human being as well so we have to recognize that many of these women going into the clinics really have been deceived into thinking this is no different from having your your uterus scraped out, you know, of having some tissue removed. I mean, this is what this is the language that gets used. Um and and even the people who are involved in the procedure there's a deception there. I mean, there are levels yeah. of denial and deception and depravity. And I don't know how to put all that together, but we have to we have to. That's mm-hmm. that's what we're faced with is accepting all of these realities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, um, one of the things that in the last the last year, particularly in light of just the overturning of Roe, uh, which just kind of it, it didn't reignite this conversation. This conversation has been hot on all sides for a long, long time. If anything, it just kind of brought it back to the foreground uh, in a very unique way. Uh, and I want to talk more about just kind of what your initial response was when you heard about that, because I think it'd be fascinating to just kind of dialogue through that. But one of the things I've heard from folks in light of the overturn of Roe has been like, it, it does seem, and this is particularly from Christians and probably even more particularly from Christian men, um, where I've heard them say, isn't it, um, is it too much to suggest that that level of deception exists at a rhetorical and an imaginative level that would, um, uh, create a situation in which women would feel that it is their only option, A, and B, feel that it's not really the termination of a life when it seems like the evidence suggests otherwise. And they've kind of uh, presented like a bit of a befuddlement around that level of deception. And what I've asked men in response to that is really about another pro-life issue, which is the the erasure of human trafficking, particularly through the sex industry and the, and the porn industry. Mm-hmm. And I've said, hey, how many men do you know that have, in, have engaged with pornography, uh, uh, something that absolutely dehumanizes, that absolutely treats uh, and objectifies that which is something made in the image of God and is destructive. How many men do you know that have casually nursed a porn habit, not, and they're so dece- deceived into thinking it really has no impact on the people they're viewing or the people around them. And that's the kind of level of deception that can exist because of sin and its impact in the world and the rhetoric and social imaginary of the world around us that you can be so thoroughly convinced 
even despite the evidence that something is really inconsequential or something is not really as bad as it seems, and you can engage with it thinking, I'm not really doing any harm here. And it's been helpful for them to think through that because I think when I heard that initially, when I would hear those kinds of lines of thinking, part of it is just you know, as a man who lives in the life of an embodied man in the world, I haven't been presented with some of the same temptations and threats that women are presented with routinely in the life of the world. Uh, But when I would hear that, I'd think, does that seem to suggest that women are just gullible in a unique way? And that's not at all what we're saying, right? I just want to be clear about that. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and that analogy is excellent. I mean, that, that that's very powerful, and I'm going to be borrowing that. <laughs> um, I mean, but slave, you know, human chattel slavery is another mm. example. I really do have a hard time wrapping my mind around how so many people and and a, an entire culture and societies could exist dependent upon some human beings enslaving and torturing other human beings. Now, to be sure, there were people at those times, including Christians, who recognized the evil and pointed it out. And yet there were others who were, the social imaginary was so diseased um, that 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 denial, that rationalization and so forth allowed them to do things that, that, are, that are worse than just about yeah. anything that I can imagine. Yeah. I think as well, it, it's important for us to recognize that whereas there is a high level of, of deception and um, kind of propaganda, I guess, would be a, a pejorative of term, but the, the language that, that we as a culture use around abortion um, removes it as far as possible from the reality of, of what's going on. But I think there's also a real sense in which a lot of women and, and even many Christian women uh, have had abortions mm. knowing, at least at some significant level, what they're doing and feeling deep grief and shame and pain around it mm-hmm. um, and that likely many of our listeners will you know be in that position of looking back on a decision that they made uh, in a in circumstances that made it really tough for them but where they they did know what they were doing and, and I, I don't say that in a I, I say that with with profound empathy I think the reality is all of us put into a um an ethical situation where we have a um, what we know is the wrong choice that will um, simplify things for us in a, in a meaningful way um, versus what we know is the right choice that will actually be profoundly hard for us. Mm. I, I I have no confidence that I would necessarily make the right choice. Um, you know, only by the spirit of God would I make the right choice in those circumstances myself. Um, but I think it's just it's been increasingly evident to me in conversation with friends how um, you know how, how many. Uh, Christian women have ha- experienced abortion. Um, it seems like it, it, equally, or, or um, you know, on the other, on the, on the other hand, I, I'm always um, surprised and saddened as I meet more and more people in the world how many women have experienced rape. Actually, mm. um, who mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the vast majority of their friends and family and colleagues may not may not know about it. But there's, a, I think, there's a lot of hidden pain uh, in this territory yeah. where people are looking back with with deep sort of grief on their decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm. Karen, help, help us to, to think, so Kyle brought up the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Um, help us to think about how to, on the one hand, like you know, re- rejoice in that uh, as a, a, a step in, in the direction of justice, and on the other hand, not do so in a way that is 
mm. callous or or um, unfeeling toward those for whom this is a profoundly painful area. And, and yeah, I just I'd love to hear your reflections on that. I think it is it's such a basic and essential and foundational step to say, you know, that that the law that the the most basic function of the law is to protect mm. human life. Like mm. that that is the first and and most basic function. And so the fact that 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 it wasn't doing that, I mean it still mm. isn't. Um and not only in the area of abortion, I mean that it, all it did is overturn, you know, one national mm-hmm. standard. Um so so the, the fact that we that this basic elemental foundation was not there and now is is certainly cause for celebration but we also have to recognize all of the brokenness and disruption and um distortion and deception that has occurred because that law was in place for mm-hmm. so long and so i don't i don't think it's um you know there's there was some debate when the when the when the law was overturned you know what our posture should be do we celebrate do you know and some christians were were saying no and you know it's kind of what you're getting at if again if we look at the civil war and we look at the abolition of slavery uh, especially in in america i mean my my studies are more in Great Britain and and its abolition, but in America we had a civil war over this mm-hmm. issue, and certainly we would rejoice, um, and and people did rejoice when um, slavery was abolished, and yet that does not mean ignoring the price that mm-hmm. was paid and the losses that took place and the division of the country and so forth. So there was a whole package. Um, involved in that issue, something great to be celebrated and yet so much damage um, to be repaired. And it, we didn't really do a good job with that in this country. That's We're yep. still we're still suffering the effects of that. Whereas in England, um, slavery, the slave trade was abolished incrementally through parliament, through the great influence of, of, of Christians, evangelicals, Quakers, others, and there was no civil war. And you know, I and and I don't think that they have the kinds of civil rights uh, problems and the baggage from Jim Crow um, there that we have here. So it's interesting. We abolished slavery through war. They abolished it through long, you know, forty years of efforts by abolitionists through Parliament, tinkered away at it until finally the slave trade was abolished. Um, and I think that they that the aftermath has been far less uh, mm-hmm. there than it, than we continue to struggle with here. And I, I kind of went off on a couple of different rabbit trails there. So if I didn't answer your question, bring it back. <laughs> no, I think that's a really interesting observation. And I think what you're saying is is kind of holding both of these things together. I, I, I for one, when when I heard about it, I had two very strong emotions at the same time. One was joy. And the other was sorrow. Sorrow for Mm -hmm. what it took to get here. Sorrow for the compromises made in route. Sorrow for the exponential collateral damage that the, that Roe had caused and that wrong headed approaches to the overturn of Roe had caused. Uh, and, I think that, you know, as, as I was, I'm a pastor. So as I was shepherding my congregation, even through this, as you know, I'm an adoptive father, my family is involved in foster care. We've been involved in right to life issues for as long as we've been married. We've been married for 12 years. Uh, and I grew up in a church, uh, came to faith in a church and grew up in a church under my father, who's a pastor who was very active and involved in this issue in the state of Texas. And so 
I, I don't feel like I'm new, just like you, uh, Dr. Pry, don't It doesn't feel like I'm new to caring about this. It did feel to me like, like so many things where uh, it felt like, no, you have to have an undivided heart about mm-hmm. you either have to be totally bothered by all of the things that Christians haven't done. And that, that, that can be the only way you frame it up. Uh, and the concessions made in route. You have to be totally bothered, angry, and sad about that. Or you have to be totally joyful and you can't acknowledge any of the fact that there was collateral and concessions. And now we have to do some, we have to do, we have to make inroads into some work that we've, we have put off. And it's like, mm-hmm. and I felt like, no, it really doesn't have to be an either or here. We can say we're really glad that this was overturned. Like you said, it is the basic element and principle and goal of law to preserve life. This is one that was not accomplishing that at a national level, uh, at least in principle. And so it's good that it's not there. It, but that's mm-hmm. not all that has happened with the overturn of Roe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, th- I think just adding to that, Carl, I'm curious for, for each of your reflections on this. I have many like very close friends who are not Christians and for whom this feels like as much of a justice issue as it feels for me in the opposite direction. Right. Now, Mm. it's not surprising. Like we're starting with, we have completely different starting points Mm -hmm. because I'm starting with the the belief that even like the the earlier stages that a, that a human being is a, is a human being and um, deserves to be, protected like you and I do and they're not starting with that, that starting point but I think what um, the, the tension that, that I'm, I'm living is and on the one hand being deep in my bones pro-life um, you know I've, I first was part of a, a demonstration age 16 and hearing people on the other side shouting like pro-life that's a lie you don't care if women die mm. so I think I think where I've been living is on the one hand being um truly glad for any sign of progress on this on this issue um truly encouraged actually by many christians who you know like you kyle are um could not be accused of only caring about unborn babies and not caring about kids in the foster system or kids that need adopting etc etc which is often the the charge leveled at us but then at the same time uh, having to to relate to friends for whom this feels like um a, a horrific injustice mm-hmm. And know it like I guess yeah, holding holding that tension of, of that deep disagreement mm-hmm. and trying to trying to honor their moral um, heart even while fundamentally disagreeing with their moral conclusions. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Karen, I'm curious if you're in that position. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. And it and it just um, it says so much about our culture um, and our social imaginary that that so many women feel right or rightly or wrongly their perception is that their equality and their dignity and their place and their freedom depends on the ability to make this mm. choice like i i get that and i receive that and i hear it and and i say that is such a travesty mm. that it, this is so important to them and we have created a world in which that has become that important and and it is that important to at least by their perception for for many reasons some of which are you know some of which are just you know i mean biology we i don't think we can deny that i mean women bear 
children as a result of the of the sexual union, and that really can't be changed. Um, but so many of the other things, the the assault that we talked about, the the rape, the the, the injustice, the the lack of support, um, the 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 desperation that could be um, attended to um, by care and concern. All of those things make this choice so fraught with so with with much more than it mm-hmm. than it should be. Um, and and that's that that just that just makes me really sad and mad, I guess that um, that that women have that they that they have that abortion has become this in the lives of so many women, or at least the option to have abortion. There's the tragic reality is, well, there's, when we think about the tragedy of abortion in this country, it's multifaceted. Some want to emphasize the tragedy of personal responsibility neglected, which there's a tragedy there. Some want to emphasize the tragedy of the, uh, the, the death or the killing of human life. And there is tragedy there. Some want to emphasize the tragedy of a situation, of a social imaginary, of a culture that does that does not see value in life that can't produce a return, like the the very young mm-hmm. and the very old. Um, and there's tragedy there. Some want to see tragedy in the plight of uh, women who are taken advantage of. And there's tragedy there. It seems to me that most of the time – either callist or libertarian views, and I don't mean libertarian politically, I just mean maybe you could say highly kind of uh, very heavy-handed or very like open-handed views on this issue, they focus in on one part of that tragedy spectrum to the neglect of all of the others. Yeah. So they're yeah. like, well, the, the tragedy is the personal responsibility, the failure of moms and dads to see li- see this as uh, unborn life, human life, and to terminate that life. There's tragedy there, and but get them to start talking about the wider uh, the wider circumstances, the kind of wider field of the horizon of maternal care, pre and postnatal, and. Uh, poverty services and social services for young families and uh, family Mm. medical leave policies and maternal leave policies and paternal leave policies. Get them to try to think about all that. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. That's all, you know, that's, you're just distracting from the issue. It's a personal responsibility issue. And you're going, well, there's, it's not that it's not a personal response. There's not a personal responsibility component. It's just that isn't there also this whole other thing? Can't we be sober-minded enough to go, the situation is actually more tragic than we pretend it to be oftentimes. Yeah, yeah. It's not less mm. tragic. It's just, it's more tragic. And I think a lot of people that have taken a holistic conception on this issue or kind of looked at it through that kind of holistic lens are faulted for distracting. And I don't think they view mm-hmm. them, I don't view myself as a, as a distracting voice. I view myself as like a, oh my goodness, you, you're saying it's this bad. It's not this bad. It's mm-hmm. this bad. It's far worse. Yeah. And yeah. We, we need much more help than we can, we've even begin to dream of. Yeah, curiously, going back to the, the slavery analogy, in my experience, the same people who will say it is really the woman's responsibility and not the culture's responsibility um, when it comes to abortion will also look back at times past and say, yes, well, that person, sure, they were a slaveholder, but he was a man of his time. And so we mm-hmm. can't really kind of fault him individually for that profoundly immoral choice. And so just to echo what you're saying, Carl, I think we do have to hold those 
those two things together. Um, and as far as we can avoid the moral high ground, I, I feel like, gosh, every time I read the Gospels, I'm just confronted with the fact that we have a basic human instinct to want to think well of ourselves and not to come to Jesus as repentant sinners. And so even in this conversation, we want to kind of enter in as the self-righteous arbiters instinctively. I think, you know, as, as, as Christians, um, where Jesus would have us, I think, um, lean into the, the love and care and grace and forgiveness, um, for those who, who recognize, you know, who, who can't escape their sense of sin when it comes to these issues. Um, Karen, give us, give us some thoughts about, um, the best way to move forward, you know, given the, the moment that we're at now, so Roe v. Way overturned, but, but so much more that needs to change, not just legally, but, but culturally and, and in terms of how our, our churches function and operate. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on next steps. Well, you know, I, th- I think that this, the decision, um, the court decision has revealed, I mean, and all the chaos that's followed on, on, mm-hmm. on both sides, on the, you know, I, I'm pro-life side and um, pro-choice side, the chaos that has ensued and the confusion, I think, shows how complacent we've kind of become on both mm-hmm. sides of this issue. So, for example, um, just the fact that that so many physicians and lawyers and lawmakers and, and, and Jane and John Doe's in the public seem to have collapsed the moral categories for, you know, medically um, necessary or therapeutic abortion versus elective abortion. And so you've got, you've got women who are in an actual sort of medical emergency, you know, there are reports of them being refused care. um, And that's somehow the fault of, of, of the, of the, the pro-lifers or, or the, or the overturn of Roe versus Wade. And perhaps it is, but it's really the fault of the, of the fact that Roe versus Wade, um, allowed us to to blur all of the moral mm-hmm. distinctions between you know getting an abortion just because you know you you want it versus it's 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 a it's a medical emergency and so we have to parse those things out we have to come up we have to well they've already existed but we have to bring back better definitions of these moral and medical categories um, and I, I haven't seen, you know, people are just sort of arguing over whether the law makes these distinctions or not. And the fact that the law perhaps doesn't make these distinctions points out another area where I think we, we got caught short. And that is that we have unfortunately allowed abortion. I mean, it is a political issue. It, there's no mm. way around that. Everything that's important is political. Um, and laws matter. But we have allowed abortion to become kind of a um, something that politicians can mm-hmm. use to woo us and bribe us and get the votes. And I think that we really have to start being more discerning about what it means to be pro-life as, as people, as Christians, but and to not allow ourselves to be used by mm-hmm. politicians who just mm-hmm. want to leverage that issue in order to get our votes uh, on, e- on either side. That's true of either side. Um, and so I guess my long kind of way of, of answering your question, I don't, you know, we have a long way to go, but for me, I've just been doing a lot of sort of self-examination mm-hmm. of saying, okay, so so have we been too complacent? Have, we, you know, these 50 years that Roe was in place, have, we, have I allowed myself to be used by politicians who really don't care that much about abortion or life issues, but just want my vote? Um, and so I think there's a sifting that's painful, um, but that 
that will be good in the end in, in helping us, those of us who are pro-life for the right mm-hmm. reasons, because there are lots of reasons people can be against abortion, um, to kind of strip away um, the baggage, the, 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 the political, the, you know, the, the rhetorical, um, and just focus not just on the laws, not that we ever did that, but the laws that we make have to be better. They have to, they have to change the categories. They have to accommodate the nuances, I guess, mm-hmm. the philosophical, mm-hmm. ethical, medical nuances. Um, and we've all, I think we've all just been complacent on both, on both sides. And Roe has kind of said, okay, so let's, let's, let's get some clarity yeah, yeah. here. Yeah, it seems to me that as with many issues on this one in particular, people tend to hear only from their own side and only the cases that are hard for the other side. Mm-hmm. So, you know, folks who, who mm-hmm. would consider mm-hmm. themselves um, right. pro-choice will have a, hear a steady diet of, you know, tragic scenarios of 10-year-olds being raped or, or women who are um, you know, maybe have an ectopic pregnancy that simply couldn't go to term, um, as if, you know, that, that's the, the main category we're talking about. And likewise, you know, pro-life people will, will only hear about sort of late term partial birth abortions, which are, mm-hmm. you know, harrowing to the mm-hmm. conscience of, of even many of the most, um, you know, li- liberal on these, these questions. It seems to me we, we need to get better at spending time with staring in the face the ethical situations that are hard for our position. Uh, and mm-hmm. not not letting go of our position, but but staring those in the face and saying, you know, h- how can I understand both this scenario and how it's impacting, you know, people on the on the other side of this this question? Yeah, you know, I think that that's you. You both are both right. I think if I was a listener, um, I might be wondering, hey, what are some like real practical things? Like, what do we do now? Practically, I think self-examination is a good part of it. Thinking through who's in our community and how we need to and, and should talk in a way that's winsome and persuasive about this issue with those people. But I do have a few things here that I think would I would just like encourage you, if you're passionate about this, here are some things to consider. Uh, write your local senator, congresswoman, congressman, governor, if specifically if you're in the South or a state that typically trends more conservative, write them and let them know you are a Christian, you believe in the sanctity of human life, and you think that as a Christian citizen, they should know that you also believe that there are situations where there are medical procedures necessary, and you want to make sure that the laws of the land are just and fair to the women who are undergoing those emergency situations and the babies that they're carrying. You should write those letters. You should call CASA, your local CASA, and say, hey, I would love to volunteer with CASA. I know the foster care system. Let me tell you something. Whatever state you're in, the foster care system in that state is swamped. And you should reach out to CASA and say, hey, I'd love to be a caseworker and an advocate and a volunteer. You could step into foster care. You could step into adoption. Maybe you can't foster or adopt. You could become a respite-trained family to help foster and adoptive families. You should give to your local crisis pregnancy center. You should, they need it now more than ever. The job has not stopped. It is starting in a much more extreme fashion for them. You should see if you could volunteer with them. You should ask how your church is involved with the Crisis Pregnancy Center. All of the non, if you've ever given money to a nonprofit that's been doing advocacy for sanctity of human life, you should write them a letter or an email and say, thank you for all the work that you've done. I'm so excited to see you continue to do this for issues like the death penalty, for issues like uh, incarceration, mandatory minimums, three strike laws, 
I'm so excited to see what you're going to do for religious asylum seekers and immigrants to our country. Please let me know how I can participate in your continued efforts on the pro-life cause. Thank you for everything you do. I look forward to continuing to contribute to your ministries, your works, as this expands into new opportunities for you. And you should let them know. It does, it's not a passive-aggressive. It's a way of just letting them know. I'm here. I still want to be committed to this. You've told me you're committed to this. We've been, we have a mutual commitment. Now that what you told me was the goal has happened, let's set, let's set some new goals here. You know, Mm -hmm. we got some momentum. Let's, let's ride the wave and let's really try to make an impact on some of these other situations that maybe we have prioritized differently. Yeah, I mean, this is to, to jump from one from Kyle's very practical extreme, which I love. Thank you. I, that I I need those practical steps. Um, you know, I just just I, I want to encourage people to remember that there was a world in which abortion was almost unimaginable. Um, now, of course, it always existed. All sin has always existed. I'm not saying it never happened. We know that it happened, but it wasn't it wasn't at the rate of like you know, one in three or one in four pregnancies ending in abortion the way it has been for the past half century. And so it's it's difficult for us to, it's, it's difficult for us to imagine abortion being unimaginable as it would have been for people a hundred years ago to conceive of, of how integrated it is into our culture. So we can, we really have to envision what it would be like to recognize that that the tiniest little um, human being is is a child. Uh, and when we recognize that, all of the other decisions, it doesn't m- remove difficulties and tragedies and complications, but when we make the decisions based on that recognition, um, then everything mm-hmm. shifts. And that's what we have to work toward is to, ju- is that, is instilling that basic recognition in our minds, in our culture, in our social imaginary. Uh, and we can do that one-to-one as we talk to, to pe- people, friends, neighbors, um, as we, as we create art, as we, as we go on Twitter, whatever, whatever we're doing, we need to set that forth that vision that really just is simply not de- deniable at, at, mm-hmm. at its yeah. basis. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, the, the last thing that I just wanted to say is to any um, sister in Christ who is listening to this and who has had an abortion, Jesus loves you. You are mm-hmm. forgiven. Yep. You you needed no more forgiveness than than me or Kyle or Karen. Um, and Jesus came to die for you. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in His name. Um, and for those of us who who haven't been through abortion, let's let's not assume that our sisters in Christ who we rub shoulders with at church or who um, we nurture in community groups or youth groups or whatever haven't. Um, let's let's Assume that some of them have, and let's be there to um, love and support our, our siblings um, as they as they grieve that and as they receive Jesus's love and forgiveness. Dr. Pryor, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, listen, I encourage you go check out Dr. Pryor's books. They're fantastic. You can find them on Amazon. Go read the article she's written for the New York Times or the Atlantic or Christianity Today. If you're looking for Confronting Christianity, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter. If you leave a review on iTunes, include a question in your review, and we'll uh, explore that in a future episode. So we hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace.